This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Please remain standing for the scripture reading, which is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the fall of a donkey. The disciples went, did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Eternal God, whose word silences the shouts of the mighty, quiet within us every voice but your own. Speak to us through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may receive grace to show Christ's love in lives given to your service. Amen. If you've been around here the last few weeks, few months, you'll know that we've been going through a series on the fruits of the Spirit. And today would have been a talk on self-control, the last and ninth of the fruits. So if you've been praying, Lord, give me self-control, but not yet, God has answered your prayers because today is a beautiful palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, the highest Sunday of the year. And I know there are some of you who come from Christian traditions that do not celebrate Palm Sunday or even Easter, and that's fine. But it's actually very helpful for us to have this gift of the Christian year because it gets us in this rhythm where we are directed again and again to the events, the saving events in the life of Jesus. Because the fruits of the Spirit would have no power to them if it wasn't for Pentecost, and Pentecost would be nothing if it wasn't for Ascension Day, which would have no meaning apart from Easter, which of course is grounded in Good Friday, and Palm Sunday comes before that. The center of the Christian faith is the story of Jesus. The center of my own biography and the center of your own biography is the story of Jesus. So it's actually very helpful to decenter ourselves, to take a moment, not to, even to talk about our own growth in virtue, however important that is, but to meditate on the events in the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. 
And in fact, fully a quarter of Matthew's gospel, seven out of 28 chapters, is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. Which is very odd when you think about it. I can't think of any other leader where you'd read a biography and a fully a quarter of that story would be devoted to the person's death. But it's quite different with the story of Jesus. And in fact, the first 20 chapters of Matthew are kind of an extended preface, an extended foreword to all these events leading up to his death and, of course, to his resurrection. And one other odd thing you'll find as you read the Gospels is that Jesus, of course, has all these healings and miracles, and yet he gives quite cryptic, coded answers to people who ask Jesus, so who are you? He's quite vague and unwilling to give the clear, direct answer that people want. And there are times when Jesus even heals someone and he takes them aside and says, look, please don't tell anyone this is a secret. And of course, the person finds it impossible to obey Jesus and the story spreads very rapidly. Jesus, in these first 20 chapters, seems to leave it up to people's hearts to deduce for themselves, to put two and two together and figure out who this strange person is. Why is it that Jesus is so unclear? Why is Jesus so vague? Why is Jesus so cryptic? It's because his time has not yet come. Jesus isn't going to allow himself to be pressed into anyone's messianic template. He's not going to be forced into anyone's mold. He's not going to be yoked and harnessed and drafted to lead a bloody uprising against Rome. Because Jesus will never allow himself to be harnessed to our own projects, our own military, political, religious, or cultural projects, which might seem so urgent, so important, so desperate to us. Jesus comes and he is completely focused on the will of his Father. What does my Father want me to do? It is his business that I'm here to be about. And now, here in Matthew 21, on Palm Sunday, at the place and the time of God's choosing, Jesus is finally ready to unveil himself publicly as king. And what happens on this day and in this story is deliberately orchestrated by Jesus. He's not carried along by the will of anyone else. This is all unfolding according to his plan. And Jesus is not going to enter Jerusalem by foot, as would have been traditional for the tens of thousands of pilgrims who flooded Jerusalem at this time for the Passover feast, celebrating this massive and miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years ago. A very politically charged feast, by the way, because the promised land given to Israel by God is under Roman occupation. It's under the hated boot of the occupier. And even as the Jews were singing of God's salvation from Egypt and God crushing Pharaoh under his foot, even though they were saying Egypt, they were thinking Rome, as the occupying forces knew very well. And the Roman governor was always nervous at this time of year as religious and nationalistic fervor rose to a fever pitch. And it's here at the Passover feast in Jerusalem that Jesus' life is going to come to its climax. He's here to meet 
his destiny. And it all begins with a donkey. With a donkey and its little colt. Jesus tells a couple of his disciples, go ahead of us to this village and you're going to find this mother donkey and her, her, her foal tied up. Bring them to me. Had Jesus set up these animals ahead of time, maybe like texting a compliant follower in the village, could you just organize this for me at this, this time? Or is this a sign of supernatural divine foresight by Jesus? We could go either way in this passage. It's not really clear, but what we do know is that everything is happening according to Jesus' plan. He's the one stage managing everything that happens during this week. It's all unfolding according to his plan. And if anyone asks, he tells the disciples, what are you doing with this donkey? Tell them, the master has need of it. It's really a kingly act because the only person who has the right to show up on your farm and grab your animals and press them into a service is the king himself. And Jesus, as the true owner of everything, has no embarrassment in just requisitioning a couple of animals to serve his royal purpose. Actually, donkeys, I learned, form a very strong maternal bond with their young. And I find it actually quite touching, and I think in complete character with what we know about Jesus in the Gospels, that even as the climax of his life approaches, even as he's going, he's approaching the crux of human history, somehow in that there's part of him that's careful not to cause distress by separating a mother and her baby. But it's not just donkeys that Jesus is requisitioning. Even more boldly, Jesus lays his hands on a set of Old Testament prophecies and he says, these two belong to me. The first one, I think, is, is only implied in the passage, but it's there. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where the very closing chapters, the dying patriarch Jacob in Egypt brings his sons to his bedside and he lays his, his hand on their heads and he pronounces a blessing over each one. And to his fourth son, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs comes, shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grace. An implicit reference, but I think it's there. Highly symbolic and highly significant, I think, based on what is about to happen. But Matthew makes quite explicit Jesus' claims to two other Old Testament passages. He kind of mashes them together from Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What Jesus is doing in this story is not random, and it's not accidental. It's an intentional, symbolic gesture. Jesus is deliberately referencing and fulfilling a prophecy made five centuries earlier. And if Jesus is only a teacher, if he's only a prophet himself, even a very great one, 
This would be an act of breathtaking arrogance to say, I am the chosen one. I am the one that Israel has been hoping for and longing for and praying for for 500 years. I am the one that God is sending to rescue Israel and the world. That is exactly what Jesus is doing. And yet, despite Jesus acting very deliberately as a king, quite confidently seizing onto these Old Testament prophecies about his royal destiny, Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem on what we do immediately think of as the royal animal, the horse. Kings and emperors, of course, love to be portrayed on majestic stallions, in paintings and in statues. There's a few around Tbilisi of David the Builder and Vakhtang Gorgasali on their very majestic, powerful, and obviously male horses. It's a demonstration of kingly power and domination, isn't it? It's not accidental at all. There's a reason you've never seen a painting or a statue of a king riding a little burrow. Horses were weapons of war. They were like the tank of the ancient world. And there would have been nothing more terrifying for an ordinary peasant foot soldier to face a mass cavalry charge coming towards you. But never in the history of warfare has anyone heard a squadron of donkeys thundering over the plain. Donkeys are simply not aggressive or intimidating animals. In Greek and Roman culture, donkeys were perceived as silly and stupid and stubborn animals. And when Gordon Ramsay shouts at someone in his kitchen and calls them a donkey, it is not exactly a compliment, is it? We might have that, very likely have that picture in our mind when we think of the word donkey, but that would be to misread scripture. Because in the Bible, as you go through the Old Testament, you'll find that the donkey is actually a royal animal. And the patriarchs and the sons of David and these princes and kings ride around on donkeys. The donkey is not a symbol of humility in Scripture, and that's not why Matthew's referencing it. But the donkey is a symbol of peace. A royal animal, but a peaceful animal. The people cheering for Jesus as he rides through the gates and through the streets are hoping for a man of violence. A man who will give to the Romans what they have coming to them. A man of vengeance. A man of blood. Jesus is a man of blood. But not that kind of man of blood. The only weapon that Jesus carries is sacrificial love. And he has come to Jerusalem as a king, but as a gentle king. And by a wonderful coincidence, we spent a whole sermon last week talking about the quality of gentleness, the eighth fruit of the Spirit. We reflected on the fact that gentleness is really about being perceptive and open to other people. And when we describe Jesus as a gentle king, we're saying Jesus is the epitome of the person who is receptive, perceptive, and responsive 
to people's needs. And Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, not for a reign of brutal violence and secret prisons and executions. Jesus has come as an act of compassion. He's not here in Jerusalem because he needs to be there. He's there because his people need him. The word sympathy and the word compassion mean to suffer with. And as the gentle king, Jesus has come not only to suffer with, but to suffer for his people. The crowds, of course, are unaware of this. They're there waving palm branches, shouting these songs of praise and welcome. Palm branches were actually a nationalistic symbol when there was a revolution against Rome some 40 years later. The Israelites got rid of all the Roman coins and replaced them with their own coins stamped with a palm tree. And they're perceiving Jesus as the king, the one they've been waiting for, the liberator from the Romans. And they're singing these verses that are actually from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Psalm 118 is the sixth of what are called the Egyptian Hallel, a a set of psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that were sung during the Passover ceremony every year. This psalm would have been much on people's minds as they were rehearsing for the feast. And this particular psalm was the very last psalm that was sung after the benediction, after the blessing that would close out the meal. And singing Hosanna to the son of David really meant something like, God save the king. This is what they are chanting. God save the king. But Jesus knows Psalm 118 very well. Because all the Psalms are speaking about him. And he knows the strange way that Psalm goes on. The part the people have not thought to sing. The part about the stone that the builders have rejected. And so, as Jesus rides slowly on this donkey through the streets, the crowds are singing and dancing and shouting around him. He is the only one who is silent. The only somber face in this jubilant crowd. Because Jesus knows that he is heading into the storm. And that the outcome of this week is going to be much darker and far more terrible than anyone dancing in front of him knows. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes to his fate and meets his destiny, we know he is experiencing the pleasure of his father. That though we don't hear the words spoken from heaven like we do at Jesus' baptism, We know the Father is thinking, this is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. He is fulfilling my will. He is being obedient to the very end. And never is Jesus more worthy of praise than when he goes in obedience to his Father to death. You know, often this crowd of people 
escorting Jesus into Jerusalem is confused with the mobs who were shouting, crucify him at the end of that week. And we draw this lesson of the fickle crowd that rapidly changes allegiance. But if you read the other gospels, it's quite clear that this crowd was not a Jerusalem crowd. These were disciples and followers of Jesus from Galilee. These are pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, many of whom had witnessed Jesus' healings, perhaps experienced Jesus' healings themselves. And very likely in Bethany, in the village of Bethany, right before the outskirts of Jerusalem, they had seen Lazarus himself walking around the village square, this man who Jesus had raised from the dead. These were the people, the humble, oppressed poor, who had hung on to Jesus' message of forgiveness and new life and a relationship with the God of Israel as their own father who cared about them and counted every hair on their heads and could be trusted to meet every need that they had. And yes, this crowd is a little fuzzy. They're not quite clear about God's purposes. But then who of us here can say, I am clear about God's purposes. These are people with true and good hearts who have put their hope in a strange new kingdom that Jesus is unveiling before them. And even though God hasn't fully opened their eyes, it is right and it is good that they are responding in praise and escorting Jesus along the way with this psalm. And I rather feel that with the presence of the donkey and its colt and the palm leaves being waved, that even the animal and the plant kingdoms are joining in praise of the world's Messiah. I've long wanted to preach a series entitled Great Donkeys of the Bible, and I learned something new about donkeys this week. There's a distinct feature that every donkey has that marks it out from its close cousins, the horse and the zebra. Every donkey has two dark stripes. There is a dorsal stripe that runs from between their ears down to their tail, down their spine, and then there's a second stripe going across their shoulders, their front shoulders, behind their neck. Every donkey has this. Some have longer or lighter hair, and it's not quite as visible, but every donkey has this. An evolutionary biologist suggests that this is a phenotypic trait after genetic divergence from a striped ancestor. And that may well be true. But it's very odd that these two intersecting stripes on every donkey's back form the unmistakable sign of the cross. And this unique marking on the Jenny and her little colts are hidden beneath the cloaks that the disciples have laid on their backs. No one is thinking of the cross on that day. No one can see the cross. On that beautiful Sunday, perhaps a day as gorgeous as our own, as they sing and dance around Jesus. No one is thinking of the cross, except for the one who is riding the donkey. Jesus is on his way to crucifixion. He's heading straight into the storm, right into the dark clouds, setting his face like flint towards the conflict with the powers of evil that will cost him his life. Because the only result when the gentle king meets the forces of violence is death. And just a few days earlier, if you would 
flip back to chapter 20, Jesus had taken his disciples aside to predict his death for a third time. He gathered these men together and he said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the law. Then they will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with the whip, and crucified. But it was too much cognitive dissonance for the disciples. And when we hear something that diverges so sharply from what we want to hear, what we expect to hear, what we insist on hearing, somehow we block it out of our minds. This is what Jesus has come to do. And everything that's going to happen during Holy Week is no accident, and it is no surprise to Jesus. However shocking and however terrible it is to his disciples, Jesus knows what is going to happen. He not only knows what's going to happen, Jesus is the one shaping and directing and somehow controlling everything that's going to happen. And all through Holy Week, even when we see Jesus betrayed and arrested and tried before Pilate and led away to be crucified, we have this strange feeling that it's not the Roman governor and the Roman soldiers who are in control, or even the Jewish religious leaders, that somehow it's the one who is standing there bound in silence. He is the one in control. And so the cross, awful as it is, is not a terrible tragedy. It's not an outrageous act of injustice only. It's not the cruel working of a blind fate. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And the forces of darkness would have no power over Jesus unless he himself gave them that power. Before leaving Jericho on his final leg to Jerusalem, Jesus had told his closest disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not the dictator who sends his people to their death as cannon fodder to feed his own ego. There's nothing heroic about that. The true king, the only one who deserves to be followed, is the one who willingly surrenders his own life to save his people. The Israelites thought of Passover and celebrated Passover as God delivering them and executing vengeance on their enemies, which it was. But the Israelites, too, needed saving from themselves and from their own sin. And the center of the Exodus story is God through Moses telling each family to slaughter a Passover lamb and to dip their brushes in its blood and to paint stripes of blood around their door frames. Because the real enemy of the people of God is not the Egyptians or even the Romans. It's the forces of sin and death that are smothering all people, not just the Israelites cutting us off from the source of life that we have in God and placing this insurmountable barrier between us and the face of our Creator. And Jesus has come as the King to die for his people, the innocent man, the one innocent man 
to be condemned in the place of the guilty, the Son of God who surrenders his life to redeem a ruined creation. We often call this story the triumphal entry. But it was not triumphal in the way that the people imagined triumph and victory. Jesus has entered Jerusalem for his coronation, but he is going to be enthroned on a cross. So here we are, this Palm Sunday, entering the mystery of Holy Week. This time every year where we are forced, perhaps, against our will and against our inclinations to reflect again on the death of our Lord. And we're reminded that Jesus did not come so that we could leverage him for our projects, so that he could serve our ambitions and meet our goals. Holy Week is humbling because we're told again, you are the one who needs saving. You are the one who needs rescuing. You are the one who is lost and dead. And our only hope is for this king to come and save us. At the end of our passage, the citizens of Jerusalem ask a very good question to the crowds. Who is this? Who is this person? And perhaps an even better question for us would be to ask, who is this person to me? Because what the Spirit of God wants all of us to be able to say with full hearts of faith, is that this person going to his death is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And each one of us, not just the people of God in a vague generality, but each one of us is invited to lay their hand on the head of the Passover lamb and know that God is transferring your own sins to the one who's being sacrificed for you. And as Jesus' disciples, whose only hope is in him, we're called to follow him with the eyes of faith, not just into Jerusalem, but back out the gate of Jerusalem, to the hill of Golgotha, and to stand there at the foot of the cross, along with the woman, and witness the Son of God interposing himself to rescue me from sin and hell and death. And when we realize what is happening on Good Friday, not just a tragic, horrible ending to Jesus' life, but the beginning of something strange and new that God is doing, that somehow, through this death, through the crushing of this person, God is bringing resurrection life into the world. And then what can we do but say, God save the king? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes In the name of the Lord, the gentle King, Hosanna in the highest. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.